0: I'm close enough to the mic, so don't give me that look. <laughs> I mean, it's... I put it closer this week than usual, I... so just shut your pie hole. <laughs> uh, I, I could tell. You're you looking so... over here with that look on your face. Uh, because I'm just
1: looking at your levels. So we're back. Great
0: episode. It is a great one. Totally wonderful paper. Awesome. Fantastic person to talk to. Jocelyn Simonson. At Brooklyn Law School. Yeah. Totally awesome. <laughs> People are going to love it. Yeah, I think so.
1: I got to tell you, I don't know how this one's going to sound. Do you think I should even mention this at the beginning of the show? You've already mentioned it. So I, well, yeah, but we had some it, Skype. It doesn't have to stay in.
0: No, but you know, we'll uh, it, like I
1: was telling like I was telling you a second ago, the string and baling wire that normally holds us together and allows <laughs> us to produce this thing for with basically just free software. Yeah, I think there was an update that broke stuff and things happened. So it's a little glitchy. A, a little glitchy, and it started basically Skype started screwing with my mic. Yeah. And so I'm going to have to, you know, maybe I'll be edit it and no
0: one will know, but maybe not. Right. You, and you,
1: you think I shouldn't have apologized for this in advance?
0: It's not that, uh, I'm not saying that at all. Um, and I don't know that I actually heard you apologize just now, but... Um, well, it's kind of an apology. It's, but I will say this, uh, we might be up against that realization that that Skynet and Skype start with the same three letters. <laughs> And so Skype really developed a mind of its own, and that was unfortunate. Kind of. I mean, there were
1: a couple of problems that happened together. That anyway. Anyway, no one no one tunes in for this. They don't tune in for our problems, Joe. But they're, they're going to hear. About hear our but problems. they're
0: going to hear a great episode.
1: They're going to hear some great thoughts from Jocelyn
0: and from you. Fascinating paper of hers, really, and you too. Yeah, we, not we all, really. I think we all contributed today. This was great. As it was we always a, do. It, it was a joint effort.
1: Anything else that we should no nope. talk about? Anything we should announce? Nope. We're not going to announce the dates for Oral Argument
0: Con. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs> two <laughs> weeks? Is that
1: what it is? Last yeah, time we told did. him
0: two weeks, we were back in a week's time. That was because of that bonus episode. So yeah, this, the is, bonus. this is a, our next regular episode will be two weeks from now, as mm-hmm. our last regular episode was two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So yes, we will be back in two weeks. I think by the time we're back, I think Sangria
1: Thursday will be back in town. We'll talk about that next time. We'll talk about that next time.
0: Yeah. So I think right now, just on with the show, right? He's, he's a really interesting guy saying Thursday. The name's a little untraditional, <laughs> but he's great. So I welcome him back to town. Jocelyn. Hey, it's me. It's Christian. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. How are you doing?
0: Jocelyn, our, uh, our regular listeners will know that I am notoriously bad at pronouncing people's names. <laughs> so the guess that I would make untutored would be something like Joyce Line Simmonson.
2: <laughs> right?
0: um, but I think it's actually Jocelyn Simonson, right? You got it. Excellent. I, I, I
1: only, I, I can only suspect that he got this from us. But you know, Hodgman has been thanking donors to the Max Fund Drive, and by, <laughs> by mispronouncing their names, publishing like little—they're not vines, but they're short video clips on Twitter, right. mispr- intentionally mispronouncing, mispronouncing names. I, I just mispronounced mispronounced. Did you oh, hear yeah, that? I heard that. that was fun. Uh, In exactly the way that you mispronounced Jocelyn's name. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I he stole my bit. I think we're having quite an influence here. <laughs> America's faculty colloquium. And we're back underway. We're back underway. Jocelyn, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to talk with us about this.
2: Thank you and, so much for having me.
1: And I, I don't know if you saw, I, I tweeted yesterday almost like a little teaser. Oh, you know, former guest. Speaking of mispronouncing names, because this was, also came in on the Twitters, uh, that this happens to him a lot Seth Stoughton. Police mm. Prof on Twitter, right? Former guest. we the, the other show we've done essentially about policing. And I'm sure, Jocelyn, you know, Seth. Well, John Pfaff I as do. well.
0: In terms of, uh, we talked to John Pfaff about uh, mass incarceration. Yesterday,
1: I don't know when the article was posted, but yesterday I saw it in my Twitter and I retweeted it from the Oral Argument account. Um, Seth is part of a big write-up on the New York Times, including videos, mm. comparing body cam videos yeah. to bystander videos. And I was really interesting at the same videos. time that I was... You know, into your paper, Jocelyn. I don't know mm-hmm. if you got a chance to see it or not, but but I this did. is what we're talking about today: beyond body cams, Jocelyn's piece. So, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I, I recommend if anyone hasn't seen it, it's an interactive thing. Seth, with his law students, actually created the videos. Gave me all sorts of ideas of things to do with my students, and it. The idea is that it's a police body camera. And you think you know what you're seeing. It looks violent. Uh, but when you see what's happening and you back it up from a different angle, suddenly the police officer is doing a dance with this other person. Yeah. And so he it shows uh, really concretely and innovatively, I think. Um, and obviously it's a created scenario. How... A, uh, Cameras aren't don't always tell the truth in some kind of objective sense, but rather show a particular point of view from a particular angle and are truthy, but not that truth.
1: So we're going to get into your paper in particular, and, and I'm not sure, you know, exactly, the, you know, if there is a right order to do this in. You know, it's called Beyond Body Cams, and you're talking about the right, you know, a, a constitutional right, First Amendment right, of citizens to record police officers conducting their duties and there are all kinds of issues with this and it's very interesting maybe we could start though before we get there and 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 to some of the complexities there with this idea that cameras have points of view right and that are mm-hmm. as an audience we have a point of view and it's not you know i guess sometimes we read novels and we think of the uh, omniscient narrator and we think that that tells there is no omniscient narrator from the point of view of a camera really is there
2: there there isn't that's right and the reason it's so, such a potent thing to talk about in the area of policing is I think there's this sense that we've turned a corner and now things that police officers do on, are on video and now we're kind of set. But it turns out that there is no objective video. And that, that's true in two different senses. One is that the angle that a, a video is shot from, and this is where uh, Seth's videos help show that. Um, changes your point of view, changes your interpretation of what you're seeing. So the same thing caught from different angles, from different distances, is going to lead to vastly different interpretations of what's happening. And then the second piece, which makes sense when you think about it, is that people seeing the exact same video are going to come to vastly different conclusions about it depending on their life experiences and where they come from. And so social science has been showing this for years, and now we're starting to see it with policing as well.
1: I thought it was really interesting, too, in those in those videos and in thinking about this portion of your essay, how a video can I, I don't want to maybe I'll use the word lie, but it can it can distort things in a few different ways. And maybe even that word distort is too loaded, because one of the things that it can do is give you a false impression because you are seeing things from a particular vantage point, you know, like a right. um, and I'm trying to think I, I, in the back of my mind, I feel like there's this movie out there and I can't remember what it is where you see things one way and then it's kind of a mystery. And then, and then finally things are unveiled from a different perspective and you understand it differently. I feel like there's a movie out there. I can't remember what it is. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. uh, but there's that sense that, that what you're seeing because you're seeing it from the particular vantage point that you are, that you are seeing a false impression of things. And that's like the dancing video that, that Seth right. shot, right? Where, because it's a body cam and things are just kind of moving up and down, you think it's a violent attack, but in fact, it's something else. But but another way that that video um that video's point of view is subjective is that it is just that subjective rather than distortive, right that we that it may be by seeing multiple points of view it it reveals to us that reality is complicated that that individuals are acting from different points of view. and so something may look threatening from the point of view of a police officer and may look less threatening, taken from twenty five to fifty feet away. And even less threatening if you took it from the point of view of the of the subject of the of the arrest, and that may not so so on one level that may be a matter of perception, but it may also be a matter of reality right that that things just you know that there isn 't an objective occurrence because everything that everybody's thinking about and doing is subject to their perception, and so hmm. the way the event unfolds depends on how each of the participants in this witness um putative per- perpetrator and police officer are seeing this unfold I, it's it's
0: i don't know i, I just my, my brain no set one light person no this. one person gets to see the thing from all angles simultaneously right every person is seeing their own eyeballs are at a certain angle in a certain location right so they can see one thing right and right. other people's eyeballs are in other places yeah
1: and, and my only point here is that is that that leads to a greater consequence than just that you get three different recountings of what happened you also get three different unfoldings of what's happening, right? Because each is experiencing their subjective point of view in time.
0: Mm.
2: And three different truths, really, because it is what the three people are experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about legal language, like whether someone presents a a threat or the use of force, those kinds of things, people can legitimately and honestly be experiencing different perceptions of whether there's a threat.
1: So do you want to take that and just tell us in a nutshell why you th- – well, let me put it this way. Do you think body cams and the move towards having them everywhere, you know, there are clearly some benefits to it, I suppose. But do you think that there are costs that we're not taking into account? Do you think it's even a good idea to um, you know, have body cams everywhere without this concomitant right to film the police from the kind of witness point of view? I mean, how, how do you feel about body cams?
2: I don't have a problem with body cams on their own. I think it's a good idea. I think that they can help officers in the moment be assured that what's happening is being documented and can also help after the fact figure out what went on within an encounter. And if there's a question of whether there's been police misconduct on the other end can help document that. I don't have a problem with body cameras on their own. My concern about them, and this is something I think we're seeing over the last two years, as body cameras have been almost universally embraced uh, by politicians and police departments alike, is that there seems to be a sense that once we have body cameras on every police officer in America, then we're done with the task of making sure that we're documenting everything that happens. And my concern about that is, First of all, this one of angles and truths that the only truth about what happened is not going to be what happens from a body camera. Uh, Second of all, that uh, body cameras are always going to be in possession of the state, and therefore, uh, there's not going to be a guarantee that the public's going to have access to what happened. And then besides the future of the video, and besides uh, how we watch the video, Uh, One of my main concerns is that uh, it will allow uh, a crackdown on civilians who are filming the police in the moment and doing so not just because they want to document police conduct or police misconduct, but also because it's a powerful thing to do. If you come from a community, for for example, communities of color uh, that have traditionally had a high police presence, but not a lot of political power. And so this act of filming police officers is not just about the video down the line, but is also, and I, you know, I've spoken to a lot of civilian filmers and people who do organized cop watching, and for them, it's often about the work in the moment of taking ownership over their streets, uh, showing love for their neighbors by going out, holding up a video camera, and essentially saying, here I am watching you in the moment. And so when I think of the power of civilian video, what I'm starting to hear, for instance, I was, on a, I was at a conference at NYU last week um, and I was on a panel with a representative from the New York Police Department and the leader of the Black Prosecutors Association of America. So these are two leaders thinking about body cameras and they were saying body cameras are wonderful, although they have some privacy dangers that we have to figure out. And now that we have those, we can tell people who are filming police in public to step back and to put away their cameras.
0: So so I think the timing is interesting here that, that the Chicago police report came out like a day or two ago, right? That's right. And you think about the, the, the crisis of the lack of trust uh, and why that lack is completely justified based <laughs> on what the report's findings are. And you think about how how sort of off-kilter the comments you heard on that panel are from that point of view, right? That that people who can record, it's not just a way to watch, it's a way to, as. and I think this is the most brilliant part of your paper, which I enjoyed so much, is that it's a way to speak. It's a, That recording is itself a way to express, um, I'm here, I'm watching. My point of view, my the fact that I'm watching you matters, and it matters in terms of power. It matters in terms of um, uh, my neighborhood, my home, my neighbors. That's really powerful stuff. And and the and it's only the citizen recorder who makes that statement. So, two preliminary points before we kind of jump further into the the
1: speech angle and the and the uh, citizen filming angle, because um, I, I have some thoughts about police officers from, you know, the police officer point of view. And I, I, w- I want to explore. And I'm really interested to hear how this you know, shakes out uh, with you, Jocelyn. But first of all, like, what is a body camera? Are we looking at basically a cell phone size camera attached to a lapel with a wide angle lens? Like, what is a body camera? And then secondly, the Chicago police report. Mm-hmm. Um, if we could just get because i don't know when people are going to listen to this oh, of course, okay. people will be listening hundreds of years from now right they're going to want some context it's april 2016 <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: wait so, so they're, they're like wait. Is president <laughs> <laughs> A body camera is not like a projection of the human mind that captures everything. <laughs> exactly. See, they're not going to know They're not going to know that. That's so true. Yeah.
2: Just, Originally, know. the only cameras we had uh, that police officers were using were actually dashboard cameras. So that's sort of the original body camera was that there have been, in LA, for example, videos that are mounted to the dashboard of police cars. And now we're moving towards body cameras, which really two years ago, I think they were in three or four police departments anywhere in the country. And we're getting towards the place where they're going to be everywhere. So as you can imagine, manufacturers are all over this. And there are many (laughs) designs for body cameras. But the typical one would be something that you clip to your uniform. It's right around where you might imagine a badge is. And it looks out forward, uh, just uh, less than a foot below where a police officer's head would be looking out. And the idea is not that they're always on, but that they can be turned on and off by an an officer, uh, either when at their discretion, or often there's some kind of a mandatory rule. When you are going to stop someone or interact with a civilian in public, you always must turn it on.
1: So is 24-7 recording, is that... Is that not technologically possible or is it restrictive? I mean, why why don't we treat these things like flight data recorders? Why are they just not kind of always going?
2: Because the flight data recorder doesn't fo- follow the pilot into the bathroom or to their lunch break or ah. to a private conversation.
1: I knew there was good, there. Were, I had <laughs> totally forgotten about bathroom breaks. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, that's sort of the, the obvious one. Because there's elements of policing that are private, both for the officers themselves Uh, and for members of the public. So going into someone's home, responding to a sensitive situation is often the kind of situation that officers and law enforcement officials will start to talk about when they start to talk about some of their worries with police body cameras. Certainly Mm -hmm. the technology is all of the kind that it can be turned off. And the concern there, of course, is that uh, police officers are going to turn them off at times when they want them to be on. Uh, there was a study done in L.A. This is back with the dashboard cameras, and it found that in the precinct in L.A. that had the highest number of complaints of police brutality, the dashboard cameras broke the most often. Mm. So they were listed <laughs> as being broken and unable to be used. How unlucky! So be- How unlucky yeah. they got the worst equipment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So that. Well, I, so I, I see the distinction now um, because I hadn't thought about bathroom breaks, and I, I'm sure there are situations where for privacy reasons, you might want them off, but outside bathroom breaks, even in those private situations, I I can understand a rule saying that, you know, you don't disclose those. I mean, and I think body cam footage in general should be very, you know, should be private. I mean, you should have to... You know, you shouldn't get an automatic FOIA and be able to recover all body cam footage, especially when it's, you know, someone will review it and say, like with any other documents. Why is this unlike any other documents? I don't, what do you think, Joe? Well, I mean, if it's I... not
0: the case now, it certainly will be the case within a few years that that the amount of memory that you would need, uh, the, that the cost of the memory involved in, at least in the short term, storing way more than you might retain will be negligible. So, So it won't really be about the technology. It'll just be about the policy mix of saying you know does it make more sense that the default is that this is on or that the default is this is off right uh who gets to make that call what's the policy what's the sanction if you violate the policy i i can imagine a, a police department concluding uh that uh once once they have body cams in place and they and given the important role that they can play Uh, That if someone's body cam should be on and it is off, uh, that there ought to be a presumption that there's been misbehavior of some kind. Um, And I could further imagine a a sort of collective bargaining unit for those police officers saying, you know, the hell there is. And we think that's terrible. And then trying to figure out what the right default rules are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but yeah, I mean, why? why, it, It seems to me if you're on the job. Not on a break. Um, There's a really good reason to think we should be able to review that later.
2: If I were in charge of national body camera policy, that that is what I would do. I would take away discretion or temptation to turn the body camera off and leave an internal review to decide when something is too private or even too irrelevant to release to the public. But what I can do is tell you the other side, the argument on the other side to allowing the discretion would be that for police officers, uh, many of whom already have a hard time convincing people to cooperate with them and to tell them what's happened, it can actually be a helpful tool of law enforcement and information gathering to be able to tell somebody, I'm turning off my camera now. I'm turning off my camera now and I'd like you to tell me what happened. Uh, mm-hmm. So police officers have said that it can it can help them in talking to, say, informants uh, to be able to tell them they're not recording it. Of course, on the flip side, those are very important conversations that maybe we want to have recorded.
1: It sounds right, though, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it does. And certainly there's a history, especially among neighborhoods where there are often high rates of violence of the kind that police respond to, of not wanting to cooperate and not wanting to talk with police officers.
0: Hmm. I'm reminded of the of the, the Posner dissent. I was struck yeah. by um, when I read your paper and and in the footnotes, you make it clear that he had dissented from that uh, opinion by Judge Sykes, concluding that there was a First Amendment right to record. Right. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what why he I wonder why he disagreed. And so I went and looked at that specifically. And, you know, that I, I don't know that I would have voted as he did or has or as Sykes did At the moment, but but it he did seem to me to raise a number of interesting kind of like you know complications like you just did like Mm -hmm. you know there are people who don't want to be recorded that that effect could influence someone's willingness to interact with the police there could be an investigative occasion where the default rule keep the camera on is is you would want to be able to treat the rule as defeasible rather than absolute so you know it it is it is fascinating in part because of its complexity that that. Um, Hmm. you know, if you're recording law enforcement, um, you also are frequently going to be recording a lot of other people who may have, you know, they're not police. They don't have the same occupational reason to be recorded and the way they feel and the way they understand their privacy and their dignity, uh, is affected by whether other people are recording what the police do because those people are there on scene.
2: That's right. And Judge Posner's dissent is about the right of civilians to record the police. But the example he gives of a a confidential informant sitting on a park bench with a police officer is sort of a similar idea. And so he says that the risk that someone may be a civilian may be filming them from afar could deter people from cooperating with the police. As you can imagine, I'm not quite with Posner on that one, because there's a difference between being out at a Posner's example is of being in a public park. And we're in a world today where people are walking around with smartphones and security cameras are mounted on a lot of buildings, especially near public parks. So I think we're already in a place where if you are going to be a confidential informant speaking to a police officer, you're probably not going to want to meet on a park bench in public. And so when we're thinking about civilian filming, we're thinking about public areas that the public is allowed to walk in and protest in and speak in and hold signs in and thinking about cameras as kind of an extension of that. And that's mm-hmm. where I think Posner doesn't quite quite get it right there, although he certainly does bring up issues, mostly of third party privacy yep. that are come up both with body cameras and with civilian filming.
1: Did he decide that there was not a First Amendment right?
2: Correct. He dissented from the Seventh Circuit's holding that uh, finding the Illinois uh, law that made it illegal to r- audio record somebody without their consent, finding that unconstitutional as applied to law enforcement.
1: Mm. Now, now, you've got two justifications for the kind of the first Amendment, or two, two different n- ways in which the First Amendment protects this right to record police officers or, or amounts to a right to record police officers. And one of them is... Um. Uh. The, the way that recording helps create a record for the future, you know, it's right. kind of the right to create information that then forms the basis for political discussion, which, you know, and that latter part is core First Amendment activity. And so this is kind of, you know, pre First Amendment activity, but therefore protected by the First Amendment. The other stems out of um, this uh, really striking example you give at the beginning uh, of the piece, and that's the uh, the – chief of police saying to the cops gathered, I guess, Hill Street Blues style in the beginning, you know, exactly. this is it, right. And, and, and it's recorded, uh, ironically, on a body cam, right?
2: I, I think, it, I'm not sure it was a body camera. I think it was more of a surreptitious tip- t- uh, smartphone in the pocket of an officer. Oh, okay. So there. it,
1: was, it yeah. was intentionally recorded for. Okay. So, yes. and, and but the upshot was that, um, you know, the, this chief of police was saying, you know, remember, you own the streets. Like, we got to go out there and remind people that we, you can't let them do this and that and the other, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you can describe it better than I can. Um, and, and so, and, and that leads to this idea that one reason to record is to even out that power balance. Right. Uh, But maybe you could explain again better than I could.
2: Sure. Yeah. So the recording, it's actually from a whistleblower uh, at a Brooklyn precinct who later became a witness against the New York Police Department in a class action litigation challenging their stop and frisk practices. So it was recorded by an officer who had been to these roll call meetings and expected to hear what he did hear that day, which was. Wait wait a
1: minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is this the guy who was on This American Life?
2: No, that's, uh, I think that one is Polanco. That is okay. not the guy who was on this American life okay. that story is. Cause uh, he was also
1: surreptitiously recording, right?
2: He was. Okay. And then All he right. ended up, uh, put in a mental institution. That right. One? Yeah, yeah,
1: I think so. That, w-
2: that is worth a listen. A
1: gripping and, story. Yeah. So yes, I didn't mean to interrupt yes. you, but I suddenly no, had a connection. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: so this lawsuit had three or four different whistleblowers who testified um, and uh, I believe that guy's name is Sergeant Polanco, and I think he was in the Bronx. Um, I don't offhand remember the name of this officer, uh, but he was recording in a precinct in Bed Stuy, Brooklyn, which is a historically African American neighborhood, still a majority African American. Um, and the roll call began with the lieutenant in charge saying, You know, everyone, let's go out there. Here I can read it. He says, We've got to keep the corner clear because if you get too big of a crowd there, they're going to think that they own the block. We own the block. They don't own the block, all right? They might live here, but we own the block. We own the streets here. You tell them what to do. So this order to the gathering force, go out there, take charge. And the more damning evidence legally in that roll call was there was basically a demand for quotas, Mm -hmm. a request that people stop a certain number of people, frisk a certain number of people, and that ended up being what the lawsuit was about. But the idea is that the context of these quotas in a largely african-american neighborhood and this is a police force that's diverse but not majority african-american and was to say go out there and take charge so that when someone and uh cop watching is actually a long-standing uh movement in bed Stuy. uh black panthers have been doing organized cop watching there since the 70s uh sometimes they used to use big video cameras and now they wear mm. matching t-shirts and go out with phones and 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 record the police officers and they are absolutely doing that to sort of assert ownership over their streets in a, in a a sense where they feel historically and today the police officers are in some ways taking away their neighborhoods from them part of the what came out in the stop and frisk litigation was a lot of stories of a especially uh, young black boys, you know, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, who were afraid to walk down the street because they didn't want to be stopped by the police. So part of it is this idea of trying to take back sort of a different definition of safety, but this idea of feeling comfortable uh, walking down your own block and not being worried about being harassed by police.
1: But there's a specific mechanism that you raise here that, that is distinguished from creating a record. In other words, you right. know one way that it takes back your neighborhood is that you're creating a record of abuses that you can later redress right mm-hmm. but you point to another mechanism right that and that's just the um the the power that comes from sticking a camera in someone's face and saying i'm i'm watching you right reminding them of that's the power right. that you already have and using it in that moment right
2: that's right I, I i think it's the equivalent of using the words i'm watching you but it's more powerful than that so residents have explained that they It's only by holding up the camera that they feel that they are able to stand near a police officer, watch what they're doing and express ownership over their block in that way. Uh, It's almost as if uh, people have described the camera as kind of a weapon. You know, I might not be walking down the street with a gun like that officer is, but I have a camera and I care and I live here. And I'm
0: watching you. It, what made it click for me is that at it, the way in which this is a First Amendment issue and can be framed in that uh, expressive uh, without expressive uh, uh, insight is that uh, and I'm and, you know. Another thing regular listeners will know, <laughs> as they've heard me scoff about various First Amendment issues in the past, is that I'm not a person who rushes to frame things that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but it really clicked for me as I was reading there. I'm thinking to myself, OK, so if you were if you were simply watching a police officer interact with some other member of the public um, and, and, and you weren't saying anything, uh, we might might not immediately think of that as expressive activity. Um, But if you were standing there watching the police officer and you were holding up a sign that said, I am watching you, comma, officer, whoever, right? right? Um, we, We would all both immediately recognize that that is expressive behavior and we would recognize its First Amendment value as expressive behavior. Now, whether we wanted to balance it against something else or however we treated the First Amendment issue, we would at least know there was an expressive act and instance at stake. And holding up the – and that's – it's when I had that image in my mind that I'm like, oh, yeah, the camera is – that's a way to talk. I guess. I I, want to know though and just ask
1: directly, is the First Amendment a helpful lens? is is it useful because it tells us something about the irreducible power of an individual within the state and so it it commands us to look at principles which are speech like you know i see a difficult policy question here and and some other stuff i want to talk about is again this kind of the perspective of the police officer as someone who's being watched and and someone who is at special risk of uh of of state action but is the first amendment you know lens again is it, is it helpful does it help us think about this difficult Kind of balance.
2: The reason I think it's helpful, and this goes back to those uh, the two justifications for the right to record that you mentioned earlier. Uh, there have been cases, including the Seventh Circuit case that Posner was on the other side of, that have found a First Amendment right to record. But they pretty much universally have been looking at that first justification that you mentioned of, of uh, gathering data that we can later use to discuss governmental affairs. But looking at this idea of expression. Um, I think is valuable for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, it helps, I think zero in on the phenomenon on the ground of why police officers are confiscating cell phones, arresting people for interference, and generally retaliating against uh, the videotaping by civilians of them on the job. It may not be because of the video that they're worried will someday be released. It may actually be because they feel disrespected. Um, and they may feel disrespected for ways that we can understand. But part of the understanding of why they feel that disrespect is because there is an expression happening right there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. one way I think about it, too, I like that idea of the sign. I am watching you. I hadn't sort of thought about exactly those terms. But I sometimes think, well, what if what if the phone is broken? What if it doesn't have the ability to record If you stand there and hold up a smartphone and point it at a police officer, that is expressing something to them, whether or not you press the record button, whether or not you even have the capacity to record.
1: I want to know. hmm. So police officers are among a class of people who are because of their jobs are at special risk of prosecution, of criminal prosecution. And um, and, and of fi- being found liable constitutionally, you know, through 1983 or otherwise, right? There, in other words, there are kind of very fine margins in that job, and and there are other jobs too that you can imagine. Can you
0: unpack that a little bit? Because I'm having when you, because one critique of the last that that you could, someone looking at the last two and a half or three years of American life, yeah. could say that. The insight people are having is just the reverse is true. Yeah, that they that they enjoy are, are a kind of immunity insulated. from right, prosecution. Right. right. So so I, so it's a little jarring to hear you say it that way. Well. So can you unpack it well, a little for, bit? Well, I mean, first of all, you know that I'm someone who thinks that there is. I a, do know. That there's that's, a cop problem. I do know that's why I'm asking yeah. you to unpack it because well, I don't want people to get a misimpression and this of what is you're why trying I
1: think to say. We, I, right. And, and I was going to get there, but I, I think that this is you know why we've been really kind of careful about how we do these shows because it's such a hard you know with the, with, with the cop shows right. It's it's hard hard to figure out what the right answers are, because, you know, my inclinations are you've basically armed a group of citizens, you've given them power. And oftentimes that power is the end of the matter, right? The law only comes in because of immunity, because people don't bring suits that there's a lot of unchecked power that you give people. And oftentimes the wrong sorts of people are attracted to those kinds of jobs, right? And you throw on top of that, kind of severe racial tensions and imbalances and it is a disaster, right? I've been thinking for a while about the – it's not just police officers, although it's an example. There is a – there are certain kinds of jobs where you, ha, you are called upon to make judgments about things and those judgments are not just going to be reviewed for being good or bad. You know, in the way, you know, maybe I taught a bad class today. Maybe I taught a good class. If I taught a bad class, even if I told the student something wrong – like you know I feel bad about that i 'm going to correct it, um, but i haven 't done anything illegal right i 'm not going to get sued uh, i'm you know the worst that happens, I guess I get fired right um, but there are some jobs where doing a bad job is kind of equivalent to taking on liability, either criminal liability or illegal liability, and maybe there are other ones too um. I'm thinking of certain kinds of like accounting responsibilities and um, disclosure thing. I, I I I've thought of you know every, doctors. Yeah, I mean that's that's true. And and in in a lot of these situations, we are designing the law. To give them a certain zone of freedom to operate because they're just people, right? So with docs, it's like you have to go below the standard of care. Mm-hmm. And there's also insurance to kind of come in and and, and help with that so that you, won't, you don't face a ruinous liability. But they
0: are engaged in activities that were it not for their role conferred protection, right. it would be an aggravated battery. I mean, it would be right. a really bad thing. <laughs> right. Like we wouldn't let anybody else right. do that. Uh, so, yeah, that it, but it puts we need them people, in a precarious position. Exactly. We need
1: we need people who have – who are in positions where they have unusual power over other people, right? I mean just – we need docs. We need people to commit batteries and, and – right? now consented batteries in, in situations that are really frankly weird, right? Someone digging around in your body and doing surgery right. and stuff. It's weird, right? Yeah. And things can go really, really wrong. And when they do go wrong, people are – they've lost, you know, sometimes everything they have because they've lost their lives or their loved ones' lives. So how do you – how do you balance they're, they're, they're at risk they 're at special risk of causing unusual harms and they 're also at special risk of taking on unusual liability and Police officers are kind of they're asked to make very difficult judgments quite often right and, and you hope that the tra- they get training in the law they get training in what is a lawful search and seizure but they are and they're also armed they 're empowered I, I, it seems almost i don 't want to say toxic but maybe it is kind of a toxic brew of of uh of thoughts that they're asked to kind of balance and keep around with this unusual like arming this unusual role this unusual power they're given over others but also an unusual level of oversight. And so on the one hand like I think qualified immunity is a pro- really problematic, right? I think um uh the amount of impunity with which some and it seems to be entire police um uh, departments, right? There's just a culture of either corruption and, and lying to get convictions or maybe some are not, and, and many are not like that, right? But they're also just individual bad cops within, within departments. But I don't know, I'm just kind of talking out loud here to try to think about what it means within that context of having, because um, I, you know, I think anybody can, can imagine doing your own job and being monitored all the time. Right, anytime you're being monitored and judged, it kind of changes what you do. Yep, you mm-hmm. add that to a job where you're at unusual risk—not just of being told you did a bad job, which already feels bad, right? But also, um, you're liable. You may, maybe you even have to go to jail if you cross the line too much. And these are situations where we empower you physically to overpower someone else. But if you go too far in doing that, you can be held criminally li- criminally liable. And we may say, like, the line between ordinary use of force and criminal use of force is like that's it's really bright and, and you won't cross over it. But I wonder what it's like to be a police officer. And I, all I can do is wonder when mm-hmm. someone is filming you and you're asked to use the right amount of force. But you know that if you go too far, you could be criminally. You know what I'm talking about? I'm just trying yeah. to think of what it's like. Uh, there's to be no in that question.
2: Situation. It's an unimaginably difficult job day to day. And also, especially when you're confronted with a heated, violent situation. But I think one of the key things that you've said in there is that they have been empowered to use the violence. And the way they've been empowered is because we live in a democracy, is that uh, the people have empowered them. So part of the idea behind this First Amendment right is not about the ability to film everybody in public uh, or to go into hospitals and film doctors, but about the ability to film public servants in public. Because Mm -hmm. they're using that violence on behalf of the public or the people who have elected the executives who have appointed them to be police officers. So if you think of them as extensions of self-government, then maybe that sort of adds a little fuel. I think it certainly adds First Amendment fuel uh, to the ability of uh, civilians to record.
0: Let's do a real weird thought experiment. Would you got, what do you, what would you think of the trade, making the trade? And this goes far, we're now far outside of anything Jocelyn uh, did in her paper. So I apologize for asking a really weird question. But, <laughs> but think of, think of doing this trade. Would this, would this trade be worth it? Police are fully immunized against any liability, civil or criminal, for anything that happens on the job in exchange. Everything they do is recorded, uh, maybe with the exception of bathroom breaks and meal breaks, but everything they do is recorded and it's released to the public fairly quickly, right? So in other words, we get the maximum accountability that comes from people knowing what happened and being able to point to some evidence of what happened. And that other concern is taken away right there there can't at least be civil liability repercussions or criminal liability repercussions does that strike you christian as a fair trade or a bad trade eh, or like a, something in between or what do you think of that seems like a bad trade because because it's way too uh, it, it gives way too much room well, and space I, I for bad you'd, behavior?
1: You'd immediately be in kind of a like a master-servant liability calculation about, you know, equivalent to that in me, tort me law. What? Where, where, like, you're trying to determine whether what the act they did was within the scope of employment. So you would be immunized, you know what I mean? Because okay, you can't that, just...
0: That's What a lawyerly response, well, right? That's <laughs> a, what, a, what a lawyerly bad uh, idea no, to come there, up with.
1: There's no way around it, because you can't immunize them against, you know, so, so I'm on the job, and now I'm going to shoot this person who I really think needs killing right, <laughs> like you're not going to immunize them against that that's going to be a quote unquote frolic and detour in the tort language, right, and so you're going to be thinking, well, was this in the scope of their, I think you are inevitably going to be led, no matter how much you wish to avoid it to asking what is inherent in the job of being a police officer and defining that question creates the scope of liability It's just that then this doesn't is your job. worry
0: then doesn't your worry kind of fade pretty far into the background? your worry about the fact that you know, well, recording changes this thing that already gives them both amazing power and puts them in amazing jeopardy. I'm not... Like look, that balance, look, I, it seems to me, is not not moved really... I'm not, m- Yeah, this is... I It's it's
1: wrong to say that this is a, a worry or a, like a doctrinal disagreement because I actually think that they're... I, I don't know I if it should be it First Doctrine. Amendment or not, but I, I think that, you know, citizens should be able to record police. I think citizens should be able to disrespect police. I think part of police training is saying, you know... You don't get to have the same kind of pride that other people have uh, when, you know, in a, in a, in a, like a bar brawl situation or something right. like that. Right. Um, my, but my worry is whether it's possible, right? It's about human psychology and whether we're asking the impossible of a really, it's a large group of people, right? I and mean, there are a lot of police officers, right? And what you're asking them to do is to. You know, you know, this writing about prisoners in the panopticon, right? Yeah. Um, you're, you're asking them to behave in a constantly observe scenario in which those recordings could be used as evidence in the future. And you're asking them to do things that are inevitably kind of close to the line, or at least a lot closer to the line of committing a crime than you and I ever get, Joe. Ever. Right. Right. Or ever would be asked to as
0: part of our right. job.
1: And so I, all I'm trying to do is, is to think about how a well-intentioned good cop would feel in that situation. You know, would would it be doable? Like if you were because I'm already thinking, like, if in my job I were recorded all the time.
0: So what? so, Jocelyn, when the when the body cam discussions and again, you're writing about something quite different. You're writing about citizen recording. But but when the body cam discussions have been have been had as a matter of public policy, um, since they seem to be widely adopted and viewed as very popular with lots of policymakers, was this conversation part of what they talked about, what Christian just described?
2: On the one hand, yes. Uh, Officers are worried about getting in trouble because of things that are on video. But I think it's a stretch to say that they're worried about being prosecuted or about civil liability, because as you I think, as one of you alluded to uh the world we have right now is one in which it's extremely rare for police officers to be prosecuted for anything they do and although the 4th amendment says you can't use excessive force we have qualified immunity and doctrines of good faith and other yeah. things that generally shield and you could imagine good reasons for that doctrine just as you can imagine critiques of it that actually give a wider bubble beyond the literal reading of reasonable use of force for police officer behavior So it's within that context, which is why I would reject that trade, because I think we already don't have very much liability. (laughs) Um, And frankly, I wouldn't really seek liability as the answer to our woes. I think I would seek solutions more in training and police culture and things like that. But you could imagine a police academy that trains officers to embrace being recorded and show off uh, how good police officers they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, stop and, you know I've seen videos that have gone viral of police officers stopping to dance with kids on the street. And then suddenly that's on the nightly news. Do
1: you think that would be enhanced by a more rule-like doctrine of police liability? Because C- so many of our doctrines about excessive use of force and search and seizure are standards-like. And I- I'm usually <laughs> one who thinks that rules are illusory, right? And so I'm I have been skeptical of the kind of the scalia approach to the rule of law as a law of rules when it comes to this sort of thing. Especially when we're asking whether the whether the uh, whether the use of force went too far. I'm I'm kinda of skeptical. So what would be
0: an example of a more rule like approach that you're asking well, I, about? I,
1: I don't even know. I, I don't even want to say because I, I I haven't thought about it enough, and, and I think you'd want to ask in different areas too. Okay. I think the one of the one of the upshots of a more rule like doctrine would be the kind of the proliferation of rules. Mm. This scenario, this scenario, that right. scenario. So I can imagine a set of rules in a car stop scenario,
0: you know, where might be harder to train on though if it's a proliferated list of of lots of sub rules and sub rules and. But yeah. maybe we should talk to someone about that. We well, should have a guest who's done that kind of training. I want to connect to the cultural point, though, and ask about Seth Stoughton again, because yeah. when we had him on, his whole sort of guardian culture versus warrior culture, right. I was very reminded of that as well in the vignette that you used to open your piece, Jocelyn, um, that it seemed to me to go right at that guardian versus warrior. Right. And, they and were
2: that, they were being warriors.
0: Totally. And, yeah. and, and how And how dysfunctional in a way that is. Uh, And then the observation you just made about well wait a minute from the from a certain point of view maybe police could would be would think of themselves as yeah please film us we're doing an awesome job out here protecting people and helping create a safe environment Mm -hmm. Um, we'd love for you to record it because then people will know better that how awesome we are like is there (laughs) do you think that's a what do you think about that guardian versus warrior.
2: I, I think it's a terrific way of thinking about it, and I'm a fan of Seth's work, and especially there's a piece in, I think, the Harvard Law Review Forum that talks about that distinction. And it, I don't think it's a total dream. He's described uh, some officers who think that way. I think perhaps he thought that way when he was a police officer. Um, I've spoken a couple of times with a uh, chief. I think his name is Del Potro. Uh, he's the chief of the Burlington Police Department, and he used to be in the NYPD. And he says that's how he trains his whole department. Uh, They have trainings in how to sort of take advantage, if you will, but not in a bad way, of the ubiquity of cameras, both body cameras and being filmed. And to remember that you're unfilmed and think about sort of even just something like um, being nice and polite and welcoming as being part of your job and instrumentally, and maybe because you don't want to get in trouble on the nightly news on YouTube or at a disciplinary proceeding, but overall he thinks it makes the police department better and better liked by the community.
1: So a broader notion of the first amendment, I know we're kind of shifting back and forth, but I think this connects up ultimately with what you just said, a a, a broader notion of the first amendment includes this like right to petition. This almost like, and we saw a paper about this um, years ago and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting who presented it, but there's something about physical confrontation with authority that is a, is maybe a forgotten part of the first amendment. Mm -hmm. And, and the example I always come to is Stephen Colbert's unbelievable classic performance at the white house correspondence dinner. Like, which I thought, you know, this is when he confronts right there with Bush right there and basically shreds the administration and the journalists, right. Mm. It's like both. Right. Uh And I thought, from my, And then, of course, everybody says, hey, it wasn't very good right afterwards. Like all the journalist class were like, you know, he fell flat and then it uh-huh. took on a life of its own. And I think everything, I think a lot of stuff changed after that. I don't want to say everything. I don't want to overstate it. But I think that the approach the press took to the White House was different after that day. Subtly, it took some it took a while for things to, to grow and change. I think that to me is always the example I turn to when I think about. The additional power of confrontation, because he didn't say anything there that he hadn't been saying on his show for a long time. I mean, it's right. slightly different material. There's something different about – and the same thing, I guess, when Obama was criticized for criticizing the Supreme Court in uh, uh, in one of the State of the Union addresses about um, uh, about citizens united sure. which which led alito who was there to kind of mouth the words like you know that's false or wrong or something like that um, there's something different about you know having to be confronted with someone who disagrees with you which is why and you cite in the paper these um, these cases upholding the idea that you can mouth off to police officers right? And, right and and that's you know they they simply aren't entitled as a matter of law to respect they're, they're entitled to bodily integrity. They're entitled to carry out their duties. Um, but in no way uh, do you have any duty to be nice to a police officer. Now, you may have a moral duty to be nice to people, to other people, right? right? Um, you may have a moral duty to be nice to a police officer who's performing his or her job in just an ordinary way. But there's no legal duty. And in fact, you, I forget the case that you cite, but you mentioned, uh, but, but the judges there say that that is what distinguishes us from a police state. Right. This ability in person to express displeasure. Do you see, for example, if I were to mouth off to a police officer with a profanity on the one hand and hold up a phone on the other, which is the kind of conduct that you're looking at in particular, right? Holding up a phone, even if it's not recording and they don't know that. Are those really different kinds of statements to the police officers? Are they the same? I mean...
2: I, I think yeah. I think holding up the phone is actually a more articulate statement, <laughs> a more nuanced statement than simply uh cursing at a police officer, although I can imagine a curse embedded in a couple of sentences that might be equally articulate. But I think it feels to me like a political statement to mm-hmm. and it could be, you know, just a, a small sense of politics, but it's an expression towards a public servant about that public servant's job and about the accountability of that public servant to the community. And it doesn't mean the person is going to express it in those terms, but it's, it's like, uh, you know, as you said, the right to petition or the right to protest or the right to communicate to members of the government, public servants, uh, to their faces like Stephen Colbert did. And part of uh, the danger, I guess, of, uh, the cloud being so voluminous and so able to hold all of the data is this idea that there's an equivalence between down the line being able to see everything that the police did and being able to be there in the moment, being the ones seeing what the police do. It's apples and oranges. Um, yeah, the citizen
0: what, dignity that you're asserting when you're there recording um, and, and it would have nothing to it, it would exist whether or not the recording survived. Right. Um, is I I think and it's funny Christian that you I like the word confrontation at one level I, 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 another I don't but I like I like it at one level in part because it kind of sets up you know in 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 criminal procedure confrontation is about what goes on in the courtroom at a trial right you ha- you get you yeah. have the right to confront the witness against you right right that's actually textually there um, and when we think about what that level of engagement is about it's sort of the the very sort of same thing that you were describing mm-hmm. that that you that there's something about the kind of you you may have differing views, but you you both owe each other the dignity of recognizing that as as reality, and we need to take account of that in a trial where your liberty's at stake
1: mm-hmm.
0: similarly, when law enforcement is in a community engaging in the ways that it is going to engage in that community, the dignity of the people in that community is is critically important. There's something
1: about power in a criminal trial too. Uh, the leveling of power works um, through confrontation, but it also works. You know, the judge sits above the parties, Mm. but but the the state doesn't sit above the defense. The state's not necessarily better dressed than the defense unless there's some explanation. Like there has to be a reason to have the defendant in shackles. Right. Right. There has to be a reason to put the defendant in a in a position of 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 apparent less power than the, uh, the defendant has the right to yeah. confront witnesses. Uh, you know, they, everything about that is a leveling of the power, right? It, it's creating an open-mindedness among yeah. the jurors, like the people who, you know, the, the jurors are like saying, this is our, this is our neighborhood in the same way that the yeah. ones who are filming are trying to say, this is our neighborhood, not yours, police officer. There's, that seems to be a thread throughout our law and an important thread, which distinguishes us from a police state, right? That, um, We find these opportunities consistently to level the playing field between people who we, by necessity, must cloak with some official powers, the powers actually to do violence or the powers to command violence on behalf of the state. We look for these ways to give people, you know, weapons to fight back um, in the appropriate way. And I guess one suggestion here is that cell phones, which, you know, hadn't even... I, I, as you mentioned, there were Black Panthers who were using heavy video cameras before, but I don't think that was very widespread. Jocelyn, I, no, it I, wasn't. Right. right. So technology is cha- is changing the kinds of ways that we um, express who has the real power in society. I don't. I'm just thinking out loud, but
2: yeah. that's right. And also, I think the example of the jury as the ultimate moment is a wonderful one, both because it is this ideal of civilian power over the state or in the role of self-government as the ultimate moment of criminal justice. But we also don't have that many juries anymore Mm. because 95% of cases end in plea bargains and a lot of trials are bench trials. So this, this, the constitution gave us this civilian input that we don't in practice have that much. And so, Part of how I think about it is that we need to look for it in other places and welcome it in other places and support it in other places.
0: No, uh, a question I had as I was reading your paper was I was thinking, hmm. Uh, imagine, uh, you know, you 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 kind of round up the cases and talk about how ultimately there's probably going to need to be a Supreme Court reckoning with this issue at, of of some kind. Um, and and I do wonder, what do you think, Jocelyn, of the fact that a Supreme Court that recognizes this right for the reasons you articulate it's not just about recording information it it is itself an expressive activity where the person holding the camera conveys their their dignity claim and their claim to witness to the law enforcement person right a supreme court that writes that opinion how are they going to continue to deny the presence of cameras in the courtroom?
2: That's a great question. And
0: and might that cause them actually to reject your theory? Because they know that once they adopt this theory, their rejection of cameras becomes that much more problematic.
2: Yeah.
1: Their justification is always, or one of the justifications, has always been the concern that it will change the functioning of their institution. They're they're worried about colleagues that they will never name who will show off for the cameras, right? And right. so, the, so they're particularly attuned to this argument that being filmed can change the behavior of the subjects of that. But film. what
0: Jocelyn's theory highlights is the fact know, that, yeah. but there's a, but there are people. Ex, you, you are you're basically you're not just keeping your hand over a lens; you're keeping your hand on someone's mouth, right? The, <laughs> yeah, and, and that yeah. is a very different image to give somebody about the consequence of their own choice yeah so so when the court says no camera right um what do you think about that what will they do jocelyn
2: so the I'm, that's a worry I have. And I do think, you know, we'll see the, there's a Philadelphia case that just happened. They said there is no right to record. That's hitting to the third circuit this year. And I think we have to wait and see what the third circuit sounds like, whether it's the, I've no idea which way they'll go, but even if they do find the right to record, that's the kind of case that has a potential to make it up to the Supreme court soon. Um, if not something down the line, I think you can make a distinction. Courtrooms are solemn places where fact-finding is happening in the moment, or law-finding, however you want to think about it in the Supreme Court, is happening in the moment. The public street is uh, a little more chaotic. Uh, It's a public forum. It's different. On the other hand, there's a worry there, because if the central idea is about the dignity of civilians to observe public officials in action and record public officials in action, Then uh, what more important action than the highest court in the land asking questions? And, you know, initially, uh, the Estes, which is the First Amendment case saying that the news news reporters do not have a right to film trials. That case was about tainting the jury. And tainting fact finding in the courtroom, and you don't really have that problem in the Supreme Court. So I think they're already on pretty tenuous grounds, and that's a good point that the same people would be deciding this case, um, as would be. I sounds pretty unanimously in opposition to being filmed.
1: It, that case that isn't it Eastern District of Pennsylvania. I, yes, I think it, it is. I saw that in your paper, and I was. Yeah. I was curious. Was there anything? To that, I mean, was it a deep analysis or was it just like you know holding up a camera is not like speaking?
2: It's a fairly deep analysis. It's a long opinion, mm-hmm. and it really, I was, I was very surprised to read it. It goes farther than any other court has. I mean, it's possible that Judge Posner would sign on to an opinion like this, but this was a case where there's two plaintiffs, and the district judge uh, combines them into one case. One of them is a man who is walking along and is across the street and films a police encounter. I think he says because it looked interesting. It's a very uh, neutral statement of why he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, where is it? It was an interesting scene. It would make a good picture, is what he said. And then the police officers ask him to turn off his camera, and he doesn't, and they arrest him. Mm. And, but the second plaintiff is a member of the National Lawyers Guild who's doing observation at a protest and is filming the police officers who are policing the march in an effort to deter misconduct and record it should it happen. And this record opinion, you know, it's 20 pages long and it cites the seventh circuit and the first circuit decisions. And it says, I don't agree with that. In the third circuit, we have never ruled that. And my holding is that to record on its own without additional expression is how he says it, or without Mm -hmm. expression um, is not, is not a form of speech at all. So he rejects both lines of reasoning. He says that uh, he says, "I disagree with the seventh and first circuits that it 's about recording for the future, and I find that there's no expression in the moment there's no consideration of the sort of the argument i 'm making and why it 's right or wrong right um, but what is exciting about it, and you know there 's already some uh, amicus planning going on is that when it, make it makes it to the third circuit, is that it squarely presents this question of whether there's expression at all
0: mm. it 's
1: weird because it 's not." The the law that gives the police the power to tell people to put the cameras down under threat of arrest, detention, what law and prosecution, is that?
0: interfering with police work. Or this something? was a,
1: wasn't this a specific
0: law, Jocelyn?
2: Philadelphia? They, yeah. No. In both instances, uh, in one they were just told to stop filming, and the other there was an arrest, I believe, for interference. But it's not, you know, every state. Has some kind of a law that says it's illegal to interfere with a police officer on duty. Okay, um, but the idea is that if you impute into that, that recording is interference, as opposed to say, you know, <clears throat> holding a police officer's arm while they're trying to.
1: It's strange, though, because well, I, I well, I, maybe not. I mean, maybe maybe some would interpret this to um, give the police officers the power to tell on, bystanders to look away. Mm, uh, you right. know, like, is there is there <laughs> embedded in here the idea that the police have an entitlement to carry on their business in secret? Um which, which seems like that, that kind of... That's chilling. Isn't I mean, it? Isn't it it's though, like, right?
0: That's totally Stasi. Right, I mean, so, that's a disaster. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you can imagine maybe some no, instances but if they said where they could, you had a right The police yes. have a right to insist that they conduct their work in secret. That's right. quite yeah. alarming I agree. <laughs> I, although, although, you know, I, it, this is
1: an area where you can phrase things in ways that sound chilling. And, it, because I Because it is, you know, we're, we're debating the limits of the police state, right? right. Yeah. Um, but But we clearly all do think that sometimes the police should be able to carry on their business. In secret, of you know, in, in indoor crime scene, and you know, there. But but it sounds chilling because if that principle becomes the principle, right. then it mm-hmm. reaches way, way, way too far, right? Mm-hmm. If that's not the principle that justifies these arrests, that the police, you know, had a right to insist on carrying out their business in secret, then the camera becomes a very specific kind of interference, right? It's not just that. You're observing. It's that you're observing and recording.
2: That's right. And the order from police officers in these cases is not to leave. Right. It's to turn off the camera.
1: Very strange, isn't it? Very interesting.
0: You know, the the, the camera, I think another thing that's fascinating about this this work, uh, Jocelyn, is that the the, the camera as sort of a locus of cultural change and cultural anxiety um, you know, the the the, the famous uh, Brandeis privacy article, Warren yeah. Brandeis, that has a lot to do with the advent of uh, the democratization of photography. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when Eastman Kodak invents the Brownie camera and suddenly cameras are much cheaper, much more widespread, that pr- produces waves of social anxiety about people can see me, people can photograph me. The, and, and the right of publicity uh, in a way arises out of democratized photography uh it's there, there it's it is it just continues to recur as this site of problems socially that's kind of that's part of the psychology
1: i was trying to get into earlier right is that in thinking about our own jobs and our own lives right how much we rely on the fact that so much of what we do is ephemeral mm. and will just disappear like that it's a source of psychological comfort and yep. and of course the question is does that change over time like, you know, kids. Well, when are... it's
0: suddenly not ephemeral, it causes you to really question things in a very different way. But is that just I... about being old? <laughs> <you know? laughs>
2: but I think if we add in the historical power dynamics between police and the communities they police, we're in a world where, you know, say an African-American uh, per, uh, person living in bed in Brooklyn has the experience of feeling like their description of what happened with the police officer is discounted, like it was, uh, you know, was ephemeral. Or if you think about, uh, you mentioned the, we haven't really gotten to talk about the Chicago report, um, but the Chicago task force came out with this report uh, spurred by the uh, shooting by a police officer of Laquan McDonald, and the police officer has now been indicted for murder. And looking at this, uh, it, talking to community members who felt like their experiences weren't believed. And that's backed up by this Laquan McDonald case, which is, a, it's, not, it's not your everyday case, but what's amazing about it is that there's 400 pages of police reports describing that this man pulled out a knife and threatened a police officer. Mm-hmm. And there was a body camera showing that that wasn't true, that wasn't released for a year. Yeah. So here we have police officers who all lied for each other, whether they hadn't seen it and believed their officers or saw it and thought that they saw something different. Um, we could try to give them credit in those ways, but there are hundreds of pages by almost a dozen police officers, all saying that Laquan McDonald acted in a way that the videotape showed was not true. Uh, even though there were civilians who were there saying it wasn't true. And so police officers have had this monopoly over the narrative for so long. And it's not quite the same thing as being ephemeral, but it's this idea of being in control of how we talk about what happened that's been disrupted.
1: Yeah. And I think that like institutional dishonesty has been a problem for ages and ages. And you just think of the number of, we've done shows on, on the nature of the sacrifice inherent in the criminal justice system, just by the fact that we can't operate one well without convicting innocent people. Um, mm-hmm. It just is the nature of the thing and the nature of, you know. Epistemological uncertainty, and but just to think of the number of people we've sacrificed because of institutional dishonesty over the decades and, and centuries, and it's just it, it's a it's something you don't see, right? I mean, y- you can't right. even appreciate how much uh, human life has been wasted. And uh, so, when these that.
0: circumstances lay that bare, because we've got the video evidence and we've got the reports they filed, which are which are just not true, right? Um, wow, it's a source of both disgust
1: and optimism right? Yeah. But I, I wanted, so this this would not solve that problem. But, you know, since we have an expert here, <laughs> I, I've always been curious about, partly as an optimist, about nudging around institutional structures in a way to achieve better results. It really to leave this whole place a little bit better than we found it. And I'm wondering what you think about the justifications for the special connections between um, district attorneys or U.S. attorneys and police investigators. Mm-hmm. I Wouldn't we be better off – and I don't know – I mean this is – I'm literally about to tell you everything I've ever thought about this. (laughs) Uh, And it won't take long. (laughs) It won't take long. No, it won't take long. I mean I don't know. I mean I'm not going to tell you everything. But uh, why are police uh, departments not totally independent? In other words, why do defense attorneys not have equal access to um, investigative units as do prosecuting attorneys? Wouldn't we be better off if they were just completely – we completely severed the link? Between prosecutor's office, whether it's U- U.S. attorneys or or or, uh, or or district attorneys or state attorneys, and they were just, you know, an entity who could draw on the investigative, the, the kind of the public good done by the investigative department within a state.
2: That would be wonderful. That would be a dream scenario, even just institutionally, to make them different institutions. I'm not. And I mean, the idea of having, say, everything the NYPD does be open to the public and not just to prosecutors, I think it's a pretty uphill battle to get there. But I think that would be amazing as long as you black out people's names.
1: I'm not even suggesting that we... Make everything open to the public, although although I think there should be greater. You just mean openness, the but like I, I mean equal access by anybody involved in a case. So you right. know, they investigate something and they refer it like if they find something that they think is, you know, there are triggers for referring what they've found to uh, a district attorney or a prosecuting entity. But right. once that's happened, there is. Completely equal access to the findings and the investigative capacities of now. I I get that there's an issue with you know sometimes DAs or prosecutors will ask the police to investigate more, Mm -hmm. and and if you give that to private defense attorneys or even public defense attorneys, there's there's some internalization of costs that district attorneys might have that maybe defense attorneys wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not going to be able to explain that very well right now, but 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 I do think there there are some kind of institutional reasons to think that maybe DAs would be kind of would better manage the funds and of the police. You're looking at me funny. I'm not going to be able to explain this right now, but anyway, I, I, at least equal access and uh, in, in, in maybe ideally some more openness.
2: Yep. I completely agree. I think body cameras actually might be one direction where equal access could be possible. You know, when I, yeah, I was a public defender for five years and when I think about what it might've been like to do an arraignment shift where you might represent 50 people in one evening mm. and have not just a two sentence description of what someone is charged with. But a video showing what the police officers claim they saw, it would be night and day for what it's like to uh, be someone accused of a crime to actually see, even if it's a biased angle, uh, just from the police officer's point of view, see what happened. But what would happen New York has especially closed discovery laws, um, but it's a very small percentage of cases where a defendant ever sees even the police reports written against them because you don't get them turned over for months or for years, and most cases don't go that well. So even just open discovery would get us uh, pretty far towards that kind of an idea.
1: It's just nuts. I mean, this is is crazy. I
0: mean, that that the records are that closed, is crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, all all we have really is Brady, right? I mean, Brady is what requires equal Mm -hmm. access to material, which might be exculpatory. But the prosecutor makes judgments about that, and we know there are Brady
0: violations everywhere, all of the time. And by Brady, okay. you don't simply mean some dude named Brady; you mean <laughs> Brady <laughs> against Maryland, right? There's a case. There's a I am talking about case. the Brady, actually Brady Bunch. I think. Oh, okay, of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Brady Bunch. they Greg is there; he's helping you out, <laughs> and Marsha too. Yeah,
1: I yeah, I, I I don't understand. I so maybe there are other reasons not to not to do this. To think that there should be some alignment, but I I think in terms of that leveling, if you think of like a the, you know, law and order, the show, like you said, there yeah. are these separate branches, you know, and then you, there's right, one stage right. and then there's another <laughs> stage, right? <laughs> what, if, what if we made that first stage more like the second stage? That's the kind of what I'm getting at, right? Because the second stage is the trial. There's the judge and they're the two part and the two parties are relatively equal, right? The judge doesn't have sides. And then there's the jury looking on and it's the investigative side where things are totally unequal. And I can't and think of a good is- justification for that.
2: Yeah. And there is a push. And if you look at the recommendations in the Chicago report or Obama's uh, task force, there is a push towards having civilian involvement in disciplinary proceedings or, you know, civilian complaint review boards are an example of this. Different kinds of involvement and accounting that take place outside of the courtroom. Yeah. Because it turns out that it's not that everyone wants all, all police officers to go to jail. For the things that they do, is that community members want there to be an accounting and some transparency and mm-hmm. some efforts to change problematic behavior.
0: So one connection, um, Jocelyn, that because uh, I know you're going to have to go soon, but the one connection I want to make is um, we have a colleague named Sonia West, and she's been on the f- show a few times, and she writes about the the press right as a right that's separate from the the uh, just expressive rights. That Mm. the the actual right of going and collecting news information. I was restraining myself not to bring this up. Yeah, and and I I think (laughs) it's fascinating because I think there's real there's real connections between what Jocelyn's doing and what Sonya is doing. Absolutely. Especially, and I don't think I have uh, I don't recall seeing Sonya make this point, although maybe she did. That reporting is itself expressive. That's what I'm getting from Jocelyn's piece. Right. 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 That that to watch is to say I am watching, and when you say that at when you direct that expression toward a public official or, or actually even toward anybody, right. you're saying something important. So, really, Sonia can, can take Jocelyn's insight and kind of <laughs> leverage it if she maybe she has it already. She but. had that
1: piece, First Amendment Neighbors, which actually, in part, a part of that grew out of episode one of this show. Mm. Where we talked about how the in the religion clauses, there was the establishment clause, right, which after the at least after the civil war is this anti orthodoxy principle, right? And then there's the free exercise clause, which is the more Mm -hmm. libertarian clause. And we suggested like maybe a way of thinking about the First Amendment press clause and free speech clause, right, is that. On the one hand, people have a right to be somewhat – in a somewhat libertarian way to express their ideas. But also there's this principle with the press which is about access to information and therefore defeats the possibility of government orthodoxy among facts. Mm-hmm. And and I think – I thought the same thing when I was reading the but paper. this is that, a bridge that, that there is, Exactly. That they are that, – that one way of protecting – there are multiple ways of protecting against orthodoxy and this is a bridge, right? It's like you can't control the facts. Mm-hmm. And, and that – And that not only when I report, I I say that. Exactly. Exactly. I thought the same thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The place where I'm most familiar with her scholarship is she has a piece, I forget what it's called, about cameras in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Um, and what's interesting about the First Amendment when it comes to cameras in the courtroom is that the First Amendment right to observe and arguably record inside courtrooms is not just when you look at the jurisprudence is not just a press right it's they say it's the combined rights of speech press and assembly allow everyone to come into a courtroom and when it comes to having the right to be present in a courtroom the supreme court declined back in the 80s to say that it's about the press and a press right and that was before the internet and social media and the world in which the people are the press in a lot of ways
1: well, Jocelyn, this has been fantastic. I know you got to go, and we appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: It has been very educational, and uh, I really enjoyed reading the piece. And we're gonna, we'll link it up and anything else you'd like to link up. But um, hopefully you'll come back. You and Seth now are the police beat of yeah, Oral maybe Argument. Maybe
2: we could come together. That would be, be awesome. <laughs> okay. That would
1: be at the, next, at the first Oral Argument Con, um, <laughs> yeah. where I'm sure people will come in costume. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, because people like to cosplay. moral
0: argument cosplay is critical.
1: <laughs> you and Seth will be heading up the uh, the police panel, so um uh, awesome. it's been it's been great. Thank you so much for this, and thanks for the piece. It was really eye-opening.
2: Thank you.